Welcome to another special edition of the ACG Analytics Podcast. This is David Metzner, Managing Partner. We are continuing our podcast series from home during the coronavirus pandemic. As a result of the following is a lightly edited version of a policy call we have already held. We will now proceed with the podcast. This is David Metzner, the Managing Partner of ACG Analytics. Many of you know ACG Analytics' specialty is interpreting the intersection between public policy and capital markets. Joining us today to lead our weekly macro discussion is Chris Zerwinski. Joining Chris is Bart Oosterveld. Also on the call today is John East, our editor. With that introduction, I'd like to turn it over to Chris Zerwinski. Thanks, David, and welcome, everybody to this week's edition of the the Macro Forecast Call. Washington, D.C. continues to change very quickly. There's a lot going on. You sit and you talk about a continuing resolution to fund the government, and then you find out that a liberal icon, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, has passed away, and it throws both the electoral calculus and potentially talks over additional pandemic relief into question. So helping me sort out through this noise is Johnny's as always. John, why don't we start with RBG and the impact that her passing has on, first of all, on Supreme Court. So when do you expect that President Trump's going to nominate somebody? Is it Saturday? Yes. So the White House has announced that President Trump will probably nominate someone on Saturday evening. The White House is waiting for the conclusion of Justice Ginsburg's services. That person, it looks most likely to be Amy Comey Barrett, who's on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. It's not set in stone. There is some pushback from conservatives about her, but uh, that is the most likely scenario at the moment. Talking about this pushback, we've you know seen expectations of a vote before the election, and then you see pushback, one, just that the next president should hold the vote, and then you also hear that holding the vote before the election is just a very difficult timeline. I I know that you've talked about the average being 45 days or so. Do you think that this is something that is likely to get done prior to the election? Yes, and my view on that changed. There was an internal discussion within the Senate Republican Caucus this week, and some senators admitted that Moving before the election imperils Senator Collins's chance, also Senator Gardner's chance in Colorado of winning the election, but probably Gardner is going to lose no matter what. Collins could probably hold on. This is very bad for her re-election to take this vote. She's already said she will not take this vote before the election, but the consensus was to press on ahead as quickly as possible. There is another complication for the elections, which is that we have two senators, Senator Cotton and Senator Hawley of Arkansas and Missouri, respectively, who are going to press the nominee, whoever she is, to state her views on Roe versus Wade and overturning that Supreme Court precedent. That is not helpful for the president in trying to close the very wide gap he has with suburban women voters. So then, I mean, you and I have debated this, you know, at length. In your eyes, what does it do to voter turnout and intensity? Who does it benefit more? Well, you know, I don't really know who it motivates more. There are certainly Republicans who hold their nose at voting for President Trump, but they do so because They want to have an impact on the court. There are certainly Democrats for whom this nomination is, you know, a a real moment. As you as you call Justice Ginsburg, you said she was a liberal icon. She is. This is not just a left-leaning Supreme Court justice dying. 
this really is an icon of the left. So I think both sides are highly motivated. Yeah, I think for me, on net, it benefits the Democrats. But, you know, we're going to get into some of this polling and some things that point to a tightening of several races with voter registration. We put out a note yesterday which examines which states have seen a pickup in Republican voter registration or Democratic voter registration. John, can you give a quick overview of the findings of that note? Ruth was the principal drafter, so I'd like to turn it over to her. The piece really just outlined how some of the polls do show Vice President Biden ahead, but that if you look at voter registration numbers in a couple of key swing states, Democrat numbers are falling. The biggest one you see is in North Carolina, where majority of polls still have Biden up by a slight percent, but the voter registration for Democrats has actually fallen 3.65% compared to Republicans and independent voters. So you can definitely see that there's going to be a lot more work to try to get North Carolina for the Democrats if that's the way it's going to go. But also also in places like Iowa, you're seeing the flip of that, where Democrats are up 2% from previous records. And the voter registration between the two parties is actually the closest it's been since 2013. So you're definitely seeing a tightening of the race in some key states that Donald Trump won, and also seeing a lowering of Democrats in some key areas where Biden's still pulling ahead. That's very interesting, particularly because, John, I, I was seeing over the last couple of days that the Trump campaign is pulling ads in places like Iowa and Ohio. And if the polls, for example, are, are so tight, seems odd to me. I mean, is there that much of a funding crunch on the Trump campaign that they would pull those ads? Well, it's a big mistake, in my opinion, on the part of the White House. We said in January when President Trump had a massive funding advantage that that funding advantage would dissipate materially before the election. And it was hard to understand at the time, but quite frankly, you had a divided Democratic field. And in previous races, that funding advantage, even the record advantage that President Trump had, really can't withstand a united Democratic field. I think that following up on, on that note, I would encourage everybody to keep an eye out for these pieces of research that we're putting out. They're very illuminative in advance of what's going to be a very, very hectic October. And prior to our, our next call next Thursday, we will have had the first presidential debate. So there's going to be a lot to talk about on this next week. Now, John, I want to turn the focus back to two final issues in Washington, D.C. You have had a compromise on a continuing resolution to fund the government, which is set to expire at the end of this month. House has already passed their bill. Do you expect the Senate to pass to pass that this week, or is that next week? And then what are the odds that then the Senate Republican caucus recesses for, for an extended period in October? So, yes, the Senate should move expeditiously on funding the government. There was a compromise. There was a Democratic concern about a program that the White House has been using to bail out, if you will, farmers, the Commodity Credit Corporation. That's an FDR New Deal program. There were accusations that I think were somewhat substantiated that the White House was using it as a slush fund for preferred farmers. So basically farmers in swing states or Republican states as opposed to farmers more broadly. There is new language that tightens oversight over that. And in exchange, there's also more money for supplemental nutrition assistance, which was a priority of many Democrats. That should pass the Senate, as I said, expeditiously. The Senate is likely to recess for October unlike the House, which is staying in session, but probably really in name only. However, 
McConnell may try to allow the Senate Judiciary Committee to meet to move forward on a nomination during this recess. So it's unclear exactly the form that the recess will take. Democrats are currently objecting to committee hearings, and there's a rule that allows the minority to object to committee hearings that last longer than two hours in the morning. And so we are still trying to ascertain the posture that the recess will take. And the elephant in the room here is obviously anything related to an additional pandemic relief bill. It looks like there are Democrats trying to force a vote in the House on additional Paycheck Protection Program, PPP funding, and that's against Speaker Pelosi's wishes. Is that something that moves the needle on a broader package? And do you expect that there's any possibility that they actually do move forward with that vote? Well, a discharge petition in the House has to be signed by a majority of members. It's possible to get there. A hundred and, do I have the number right? 114 members of the Democratic caucus signed a letter urging Speaker Pelosi to move forward on some type of pandemic relief bill that mirrored more closely the Republican form of a pandemic relief bill because the idea was they wanted something rather than nothing. The bipartisan Problem Solvers Caucus had 25 members of both parties also try to push something. But there's really no such thing as a discharge petition in the U.S. Senate. So it could move the needle on the House side. So far, the Speaker has been unmoved. That seems to be a constant. She has been fairly unmoved for the duration of this process from that, you know, 2.2 trillion-ish number. John, what's the probability that you put on additional COVID relief legislation before the election? I would say 25%. Now, this week we've had Fed Chairman Jerome Powell and Secretary Mnuchin testifying. They've obviously said there is a great need for more fiscal support. Larry McDonald is on the phone here with us. Larry, what happens here if we don't get anything by the end of this month and, you know, the Senate's out and it seems considering that 25% likelihood here, the markets have really turned over the last couple of days. Is that in re- in response to this or is there more room to run once it becomes very clear that Congress isn't going to pass anything before the election? The beast in the market, first of all, the Fed, by not offering up a guarantee of certainty on the balance sheet, it's a clear signal that they're trying to send to Washington. And right now, it's a battle between the Fed and Congress. And so the Fed's not offering up any visibility on terms of the balance sheet. So why should you be long, long duration tech stocks without certainty on the balance sheet? This, these guys are rug pullers. They've pulled the rug from investors multiple times. They cannot be trusted. And if without certainty on the balance sheet, you know, fast money, smart money is exiting. And so now the beast in the market is going to keep pushing, pushing, pushing. We had six Fed governors yesterday that kept pushing, pushing, pushing uh, Congress for, for fiscal help. So it's going to be basically like a probably a four or five week drawdown until enough stress is on the backs of uh, congressmen and senators to come up with something basically sell the rallies in the NASDAQ until further notice. My litmus test, you know, I would have thought that when Federal Reserve Chairman first said we needed more stimulus, that it would have turned more heads on Capitol Hill. Clearly, the rank and file members want something to be done. Even within the Republican caucus, you can probably get 20 votes or so. You know, the majority leader doesn't want to divide his caucus going into an election year. But if my litmus test is when I see principals enter the room together, and those principals are Secretary Mnuchin, the chief of staff of the White House, Speaker Pelosi, and the Senate minority leader uh, who's 
really been deferring to Pelosi all year. Um, until they get in a room together, then I don't think you can really move the ball forward. So, John, considering that, let's say the bit, you know, our base case is that you don't get anything before November. What happens then? Under this scenario, let's assume that Vice President Biden wins and we're sitting here in January discussing, you know, what's on the agenda for the first six months. Do you think that then if there's no additional pandemic relief package, that that is the first thing that a Biden administration pushes for? And if so, how big is that package? Well, yes. And so this is a change. So I had expected that the first order of business under a Biden administration would be to move an infrastructure slash Green New Deal package. But I believe now, if we don't have a pandemic relief bill between now and January 20th, when the new president takes over, either President Trump or Biden, that the first order of business, especially if Democrats are in control of the House and the Senate and the White House, they will move for a pandemic relief package. There will be some elements of that that have infrastructure-like components, maybe rural broadband, school construction, hospital construction, not necessarily roads and bridges. But that price tag is going to drive an effort to deal with tax issues and get additional revenue. And so the order of the bills will be material to what happens. I want to focus on that last comment that you made on the tax side. It's not in reconciliation, which is a process to push these types of spending bills with pay force, right? Therefore, this tax reform bill that they could push simultaneously as a revenue raiser, I mean, what are you, what are you expecting there? Is it just the same capital gains and corporate tax increases, or are there additional provisions in there that we're not really considering? Well, there are some Democrats who have been getting cold feet about raising taxes when we're in a recession. But I think when all the Democratic asks get laid on the table, if that is the world we're going to head into in January, that Democrats will realize they do need to raise some revenue. So Vice President Biden has said that he doesn't want to raise taxes on people earning less than $400,000 a year. That is a change from the Obama standard, which was $200,000 a year. He's also said that he wants to tax capital gains and dividend income as ordinary income for those people who make more than a million dollars a year. So there's a $400,000 threshold and there's a million dollar threshold. I think that, that Democrats are going to move that once they put all of their infrastructure and green energy asks on the table and, and see just how far that blows up the deficit. There is a contingent of Democrats who either A, don't really want to raise taxes during a recession, or B, don't believe that deficits matter the way some people believe they matter because they approach the deficit outlook from a more Keynesian perspective. And I think that for now, that's enough in the United States. Let's shift out. Bart, I'd like to bring you into the conversation. Let's let's talk about the weekly heat map publication. Can you first give us, you know, from a macro level, how are COVID case levels stabilizing and where are we seeing a pronounced second wave after that? Can you talk about our specific focus of the week, which is Hungary? Yeah, thank you, Chris. Some good news on on case levels, uh, which is that the growth rate keeps declining in a very steady way. So for the past eight or nine weeks, the two-week growth rate uh, is is on a steady decline. It now stands at 15%. So globally, every two weeks, there's 15% more cases. So that suggests that this trend continues, that uh, we may, by the end of the year, see a global peak in cases. Obviously, this is not inconsistent with the news that you see, that every day there's more cases globally because the growth rate is still positive. That's something that's now very, very 
very consistent in the data, and it is driven by a big country. So I'm assuming everybody has measurement problems, but if you want to track the progress of a global pandemic, you really need to look at the big global population centers, looking at China, India, Indonesia, Pakistan. So that's where we're seeing fairly consistent declines in, in the growth rate. So that's where we are. There are some exceptions, and I, I flagged Hungary this week, not so much because the caseload is very high. It's still quite a bit below the global average, but because suddenly the two-week growth rate is over 100% and it has been for two or three weeks in a row now, it's hard to understand because the initial wave, so the spring wave that everybody in Europe suffered from hit Hungary as well. Hungary is very integrated into German manufacturing, for example, deeply integrated economy. And so it's no surprise that the first wave hit them quite hard, but they took very aggressive measures. If you recall from the spring, there was a lot of hand-wringing in Europe because Orban gave himself emergency powers to address this and they were quite successful and then the emergency powers were revoked again and so for the growth rate to go back to well over 100% for a few weeks in a row now suggests that there's something going on that they don't have under control and they've only done minimal measures Uh, they've closed the borders mostly for refugees which hasn't been the driving factor this seems politically expedient a country definitely to keep an eye on Bart, we talk often about Brexit here. There seems to be, and I might say not really for any real reason, that there's some positivity this week. Barnier gave comments like, I am determined to get a deal. Do you put a lot of stock in that? And what have you seen to encourage that level of positivity? So the good news, and and I think the only good news, is that they're actually talking and they must be happy with the progress they're making because they're not leaking all that much. Barnier has been in London all week. He hasn't given the usual snide press conferences and he hasn't leaked to the mainland press thinks that he thinks the British are, are doing wrong or where they're being obstinate. We're very late in the game at this point. You know, the UK left the beginning of this year and we need a new trade relationship between the EU and the UK on January 1st. At this point, the progress that you see reported in any optimism is that they're successfully identif- identifying band-aid on the files that they can't agree on and their significance. So let's start with fisheries. Uh, basically, they've now punted and said after January 1st on fisheries, things will mostly stay as they are. And over a long transition period, the UK will get more access to fishing rights in its own waters. Most of that is because the UK sold its fishing rights to French and Icelandic companies in the 90s. So it's really behind the scenes, it's going to have to buy those fishing rights back. So that's one, and that's a small part of GDP. More importantly, they're punting on clearing. So London can remain the financial clearinghouse for mainland Europe for at least 18 months after January 1st, and the UK will live by EU rules and will be subject to the European Court of Justice for at least that that time period. So that's a relief for the financial sector. I wouldn't go so far as to call that a deal. It's just we get more of the same, and people who voted for Brexit are going to be unhappy with that outcome. On financial services, more broadly, and regulatory alignment, which is really the the big thing, that is what my understanding, what they're working on this, this week, and they're working on a similar punt. So to the extent that they go out there and market this as a big agreement, I think on these three topics, the agreement will be to leave things as they are and talk more. So Brexit will be with us yet for some time to come. The only area where I see disruption on January 1st is goods trade. And you see the, the UK government yesterday leaked a note about them expecting you know, significant problems at the border crossings in Dover and Calais on, on goods and inspections. And they're blaming the French for being obstinate. So that's, you know, you'll see lines of trucks on both sides for some time, and that'll be a bit of a mud fight. But good straight isn't kind of the key issue between the two blocks anyways. But the logistical issues that I expect will be resolved fairly quickly. 
I think that's that's a great point and a good place for us to to conclude for the day. I would like to thank everyone for joining us today. I'd also like to thank our team of analysts for offering their unique insights. You can also follow us on Twitter for further insight into capital markets and the political economy. If you wish to reach out for more information, please email us at research at acg-analytics.com. Everyone have a good day. Thank you very much.